welcome to Did the Reading, the podcast where we did the reading so you don't have to. I'm Jess. And I'm Abby. And you can follow us on all the social media platforms at Did the Reading Pod. What are we having a look at this week, Abby? Oh, what a question. Today we are going to be talking about Mulebone by Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes, in brackets, maybe question mark, because we don't know how much of which was whose. It's always a trouble when you're collaborating on a project. Very true. How many times have I said it? Um, no. So kind of, I guess the reason we'd like decided we wanted to talk about this today was that we'd sort of been talking about the reluctance to, let's say, um, decolonize the curriculum and kind of address a wider range of literature from authors of different genders different sexualities but also writers who are people of color who are of different nationalities who've written in different languages and we're still I think in a very like white centric upper middle class centric um often male-centric curriculum at the moment. I think the reason we kind of wanted to talk about this was that obviously Langston Hughes um, was one of the leading black writers and one of the leading writers of the Harlem Renaissance and is kind of thought of coining the idea of the Harlem Renaissance itself. And so we thought it would be worth starting with some of his work Obviously, as well, Zora Neale Hurston was one of the biggest black writers of the same period. And they were both patronised by the same woman who I believe her name was Charlotte Mason, which was kind of how Mm. they were brought together on this collaboration. And so I kind of thought it would be interesting to look at this. Anything there that intrigues you? I mean, just also with this specific play, I'm not... Not one for reading plays usually, although after mm. our episode last week, I do want to have a look at. Um, I've asked Max to lend me some like Sarah Kane plays because I do think so that would good. be very fun. So good. Obviously, he has quite a few plays. I made him just send me a picture of his bookshelf, and then I was like, I will have these. Um, <laughs> he was like, You will not, unfortunately. <laughs> Gonna have to get like a little library stamp and be like, Yeah, exactly. Make one of those like property of Max. Shout I definitely did that as a kid. Anyway, hello. But yes, I did. I do think it's important because even when I'm like tutoring people now and they're like, oh, I'm still reading A Christmas Carol. And it's like, I swear parents age at school were doing stuff like A Christmas Carol or even Gatsby, whom yeah. I love. It's like still going. Do you know yeah, what I, mean? I think we've got to interrogate why those books are considered canonical. And I think it is just like this issue of canon formation like again centering those kind of like white writers and stuff where those are considered like the good books Mm. and it's like well there's no reason why the only good books written ever in this period would be be by white people obviously and I think it's not even like oh these are the good books it's like these are the basic ones these are the ones you that will give you an overview of or like an understanding of the time also as well I think I read quite an interesting like article which again I will find a link to and <laughs> put in the bio which was talking about the fact that even if we're viewing like issues like kind of generic 
by that I mean genre-based issues like modernism, that those are kind of completely different if you look at Harlem Renaissance writers versus white writers in terms of the fact that there was this issue of like detaching the self from the body in white writers' works. If you look at stuff like T.S. Eliot, like Virginia Woolf, stuff like that, trying to kind of look at something that's very cerebral and non-physical. And this is about, particularly, for example, if you look at this play, but also in other writings, kind of very powerfully trying to recenter the human experience and put people back in a social dynamic because there is not the same kind of choice to ignore what it means to be in that space, I guess. Yeah, I know what you mean. Because also when we're, like, even when we were talking about Good Morning Midnight, we were like, oh, what's modernist? And it's like, oh, very stream of consciousness, like you say, like detachment from the body. But that's not, um, yeah, that's not a given. That's just from the, I guess, like, collection of texts that have just been declared canon. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's been, like, a super interesting like querying that kind of reality is super important. And I think as well, you know, obviously um, it's important for us to deconstruct our own experiences because, I mean, we've read a lot of literature, but the stuff that I read for university very much, again, like formed along these canonical lines. And so then that kind of meant that the course was not diverse. And I think that's really important that we don't allow that to become the only way in which we like receive literature, I guess. Yeah, because I think it's it's a kind of complex one because it's like I did I did a module called like writing the margins, for example. Mm. And then you could do you could do like women's writing or like there was definitely there was maybe a module on like black women's writing or something. But then mm. there's that kind of question of it's being it's like an elective thing. And sure. it's in doing that or in trying to like kind of in air quotes bring them into the canon are you just Mm. like enforcing those like processes and criteria that excluded them in the first place I don't know it's kind of like a that's true one but then obviously like the easiest way to deal with that is to just read widely without boiling it down too simply that's what we're going to do today Perhaps a good place to start, Jessica Curry, would be for you to. (laughs) Are you trying to avoid our stalkers? No, Uh, get famous. It's fine. Anyway, like Jessica Curry, celebrity podcaster. That's going to be on your like Sunday Times thing when we've uh, hit 205 listens. Again, you'll make me cut that out, so I didn't really even know why I say it. I didn't interrupt. (laughs) I could cut it nice and cleanly. So. Perhaps, yeah, you were going to give the summary for us. The play is set in Eaton? Oh dear, how do I? Eatonville. Thank you. In Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's written, it's actually a confusing one, because as you said at the top, there was some falling out, and that's like Mm -hmm. a rough quote from the actual manuscript. But it was written about 1930, and then it was actually premiered in like February of 1991 yes but yeah so the three main characters are Dave Jim and Daisy and essentially Dave and Jim are kind of vying over Daisy mm-hmm. and they eventually like have a falling out Jim flaps Dave over the head with a mule bone mm-hmm. knocks him out and then there is 
act two is like a call scene where the I think it's the church has been made into kind of a makeshift court and you have the Methodists on one side and the Baptists on the other mm-hmm. and the whole trial kind of turns on this slightly bizarre biblical reference is it Isaiah we can cover that later anyway yeah, sure. and it's essentially whether or not a mule bone can be classed as a weapon because if it can then it's a crime and if it can't then it's not and he should be like punished accordingly or like respectively anyway eventually there's some again this like biblical reference I didn't quite follow it I won't lie to you but there's some sort of like animal bone is used in the bible and someone yeah the jawbone of a mule there you go and so Jim is declared guilty banished from the town for two years and then act three or like towards the end of act three Mm-hmm. Daisy, Jim and Dave all like on the outskirts of town meet again mm-hmm. and she's like oh whoever wants me more will work for this white man to prove mm. their love yeah and both of them are like oh actually I don't like you very much at all and then they become friends again yeah and that's just how it goes my first thought that I want to hear your thoughts on was um anticipated issues with this play when it was being written was the fact that it's all in African-American like vernacular what did you think of this how did you like find reading it what did you what kind of like impact do you think that has and like why has it happened or whether well I think obviously well, I say obviously, and people have told me off for saying that, so I won't say that. But I think Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston were both interested in writing plays and literature which like appeal to their own experience of being part of black communities. And Zora Neale Hurston lived in Eatonville, which is where this play is set, and it was the first black township. And I think what she was saying was like trying to kind of convey the reality of that experience and I think obviously reading it is um you've got to adapt in the same way that you have to read adapt to any dialectic or like Mm -hmm. um accented text regardless where that accent is if we're talking like secret garden or like lady chatterley's lover or like train spotting sure but at the same time I think that's obviously a necessary part of it in terms of kind of interfering with your reading of the text and not allowing you to read the text and forget that the um like that the people within it are who they are and it just becomes integral like sure in terms of your consumption of it I guess yeah yeah because I think um with so many books that are arguably canonical you do have to adjust the way you read them anyway so there's kind of Mm -hmm. like a question of why you would be almost expected to persist yes with some texts and not with others I think it's also just like in the most basic sense it's the in quite a purpose in quite a purposeful way it's not written for you and I and it's I think it's that kind of movement to not let the kind of ideas of art versus this kind of language uh, exist in opposition to one another um like a lot of the articles I was reading they're talking about how it's almost like anthropological so yeah. whilst they exist in these communities they're 
almost looking over the shoulders of everyone to make sure that they're putting a really kind of authentic version of it onto a stage and onto Mm -hmm. the page as well I do understand what you're saying about kind of um like a level of exclusivity but I think it is also about carving out a space in a literary tradition which doesn't typically give space to black voices Mm -hmm. and about saying you know we're not going to produce literature that simply conforms yeah Um, because that's also the whole kind of purpose almost although I don't think that's the right word of the Harlem Renaissance in terms of like the um what's that really famous Audrey Lord quote the master's tools the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house so then there's that kind of idea of rather than kind of jostling for their own space within an aggressively and narrowly white yes literary tradition yeah which has its own issues you're making your own which is like infinitely more difficult and comes with its own I'm trying to think of another word than issues but that's kind of the purpose yes I mean I do agree I think it's also interesting isn't it if you think about it in the context of the fact that they have this um white patron it's difficult isn't it because how does that also contribute to a level of reading yeah I think it complicates things doesn't it because if you I think it kind of like gestures to the actual realities of make this art yes in an environment which is actively hostile to that kind of thing and in reality requires or is at least kind of like lubricated in the process if you have the financial backing white racist patron yeah Uh, but I think also what's interesting is that like that kind of patronage relationship is so integral to the production of the text itself I mean in terms of the fact that I think I'm gonna say Langston Hughes broke with her and was like I'm just gonna go on my own and obviously I think parts of that were his ability to take that advantage as a man who was more recognized as you know within literary culture mm-hmm. but also patriarchal advantage um but because Zora wanted to remain under that patronage she refused to break with Char- Charlotte Mason which I think was partially why they failed to create an integrated copy of the text so my next question is I was reading I think a contemporary New York article. Mm-hmm. No, not the New Yorker, New York Times, <laughs> which yeah. we will link. But there was one bit where it talks about the burdens, and that's a direct quote, not my own words, placed yeah. on black art to do a variety of things. So to like be political or to be excellent or like extraordinarily good or to be to represent a race or speak to wider issues and I think this is interesting in terms of any kind of literature that's produced by someone excluded from the mainstream the mainstream I think it's it's and I think that is a specific issue to this text and to black communities but I think it's also like bringing back that question of universality and universal voices and um this claim that you know white men have a claim to the universal but they can also speak to an experience without it being mitigated by the questions about well is that representative of yes you know of the black experience of 
the female experience of uh, you know of being gay or mm. of being trans for example and I think that is a super like it's very limiting in terms of art because I think it's about you know being able to speak your experience without somebody saying well that is harmful for this reason or that doesn't represent me or that doesn't represent x when you know there should be the same you know freedom to represent your own experience that being said I think there were quite a lot of like kind of I really I have done my research this morning so uh, you're welcome but I think Zora was a fan of W.E.B. Dubois and his idea was that um, art made by black people should be um, socially conscious and should be um, like socially activist work and kind of believed in using art as a platform for enabling change or enabling representation and recognition mm-hmm. um, and so I imagine from some perspective that was like kind of the way in which she was approaching it yeah no because I think it is important to recognize because I do think using like art and especially theater in a kind of like socially conscious way and like using it I guess with like a purpose Mm. in the most basic sense of it is important and like possible and especially so for not white men people have pointed out you know this is a play that's written by black people for black people mm-hmm. and it's going to feature black people it's not going to be you know highly offensive blackface minstrel kind of yeah art that was still continuing to be produced at that time and so if that's creating that space and you're watching that as a white person that's really important in terms of you know making you recognize how this community operates and how you don't fit into it how you're not a part of that space and yet it was only I think because I mean there are sort of slightly mixed reports and there's some people say it wasn't chosen to be performed some people were saying it was performed very briefly to limited audiences and got I think bad reviews over the course of a three-month thing but it was only performed properly in like 91 yeah at which point I think it's you know it it's a real that should have been performed more in the 30s I think it really is about watching it rather than reading it do you know what I mean oh yeah definitely it is that thing isn't it you know where like once that like for example once it's put in front of an audience that it's not intended for that's when and you know obviously I count us among that audience that's when it becomes a challenge because then it begins to get read differently and taken out of its original intended context and placement. No, I just think the main thing is approaching this text or getting used to approaching text being like, this isn't written for me and this isn't addressed to me and my experiences, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that I can't read it or won't enjoy it or won't get anything from it. And I think you've got to engage with it by recognising that, you know, there are so many other books that we've got to be reading alongside it in order to contextualise. So the kind of question I wanted to ask was about Daisy as, like, a character, because she is simultaneously basically the way in which any action in the text is enabled. Like, the movement from kind of it being this communal setting where everyone's just hanging out Mm -hmm. versus it being like 
a kind of movement or action towards an ending and she kind of facilitates that both in the fact that you know the conflict over her but like from the point where she's made present in the first scene there's this kind of constant erasing of her in terms of like for example in the court scene she's not present but also her mum won't let her be spoken of and in that final scene she's obviously like the center of the reason why she's kind of trying like they're both vying for her affections but then the fact that she puts a demand on them which obviously in itself is very like economic and practical it also facilitates the boys getting back together Mm -hmm. and so kind of wanted about like that simultaneous like presence and absence and what we felt it's important was within the text yeah I mean I think the main thing I thought about was that this is like the it's called like a comedy in three acts or something as in like I, I just think that her her purpose obviously like when you say to like incite action or like cause this to happen or like every kind of I'm going to use the phrase plot point <laughs> for yeah. like each bit in the play comes about because of her but it's like it's comedic action and it's like it just needs like the easiest kind of setup is like a kind of two men fighting over a woman mm-hmm. she does this that and the other and then she says this and this action occurs do you know what I mean mm-hmm. I think like the it is just a kind of like comedic setup I don't know if there's like that much well I think the reason yeah rude and also hateful yeah that's not like a that's not me being like oh it's a shit play that's just me being like it's a it's a comedy and yeah it's obviously it's not like slapstick but you know what I mean it's very I think what I'd kind of like I think I'd read that quite a lot of the like initial stuff it was based off I feel like it was a dispute about a turkey I will double check that and if it's not true we can cut it out um however I think that the original idea for the play was Zora's because it was a um folk tale she'd read about yeah in the like in Eatonville and Eatonville and oh no the reason I had brought that up was because Locke who was the other person who was quoted in this article was saying that the major function of black writing was instead to like bring about those kind of histories in terms of um enabling kind of cultural conversations around like folklore Mm -hmm. about shared history about those kind of um I suppose like cultural consciousnesses and histories in black communities and I suppose it's then interesting that in a way the if the play if, as I've said there, the it's about fighting over a turkey rather than a woman, it's kind of, is it like refitting into a kind of more classic comedy mould in terms of, you know, stuff like Shakespeare or whatever, there's always that kind of love triangle mm-hmm. memento. Um, or is it just that that, and it, does that then become like an erasure of the folklore, like precedent, not least because I think it was Zora's original intention to keep it pretty true to form, and I think it was Langston's to kind of vary it up. Yeah. Um, and then at that point, are we supposed to view Daisy like as an inevitably passive object because she's just a way of facilitating action? Mm. Or is she supposed to have a real purpose within the play as somebody who, for example, 
like has a different relationship with white people or stuff like that because I think her do you know what I mean like that's yeah, the yeah. other way she fits differently from the other people in the play no I think that's true because I think it's inevitable like you say not least because it's based on this folk tale that she will be without being reductive which seems to be our favorite word like it's written in the 1920s she will be quite like a passive object but I do think that especially in that final act where we do have this setup of her being like one of you needs to prove your love to me by working for a white man ergo earning more money and giving me more money Mm -hmm. I think she is like she's used to insight comedy but she's also used to kind of bring these other elements into the play but I think it's actually like a super interesting inversion of a kind of classic like Cinderella-esque ending in terms of you know we're seeing this opportunity for like a movement towards kind of capital marriage this -hmm. kind of like perfect closure and not only did Dave and Jim reject both of those things so it's like I said not only but they reject the money and they reject the job and they reject her kind of choosing each other as like a proxy in place of that Mm -hmm. and that's like a super interesting and I think in a way it's a like powerful rejection of like a kind of concept of success as defined by like white white capitalist patriarchy yeah and that is like quite a I suppose a radical aspect of the play but yeah I think so I think it's also like it is done with humor as in like Mm, I, I can't remember the I can't remember the exact line but like as soon as she says that they're like oh nah and kind of grab their like guitar yeah just like leave loads of people have talked about irony in the play and I guess that's kind of an interesting question because I mean like do you think it's ironic do you think there's like an irony facet that's important to consider when reading this play I hadn't thought of it I have to say well Um, I'm not sure that excludes it from literature okay wow did not (laughs) horrible co-host I can't help it you gotta do what you gotta do no so I suppose I'll like drop in some concepts of irony and you can I don't know reject them uh I kind of thought about people have talked about the like irony of the love for Daisy driving people apart and people have talked about I suppose the irony of these people their like attitudes towards I don't know suppose people in their community like there's a kind of level of I don't know criticism and uh like bitchiness in the town scene which I guess conflicts with you know when we go into act two and everyone's like well, as you know, um, I can't say anything mean uh, or untrue because of my religion. I suppose bits and bobs like that. I don't know. Those were sort of some of my conceptions. What What do you think? I don't know. I feel like the, I don't know if it's irony, though, like the kind of the depictions of like most of Act One, like the actual kind of hitting Dave over the head doesn't happen till the very end of it. And most yeah, exactly. of it is just them. Um, is like a depiction of like just like a outside the store yeah yeah and it's just everyone I suppose it's a query as well isn't it if it's like ironic or if it's just 
that's what people are like like the kind of intrinsic conflict and like inaccuracies of people's thinking I guess it's not trying to adhere to any kind of like artistic (laughs) by which I mean kind of like what white people say are artistic standards I don't know if there's any like kind of motive behind the kind of like characters or depictions of characters other than like I guess honesty I don't know if that's the right word like we talked earlier a bit about a kind of like an almost anthropological approach but I understand what you mean about like the honesty and I think it is just about kind of like you know even if perhaps what we're getting is not like the world's deepest review of people's like inner feelings like Mm great soliloquies I think it is about like how do people interact how do people exist in space and communication with one another and like what does that kind of say about them and like setting up things that are very I think it's interesting like act one we've got it outside the store so it's very much about like that kind of evening everyone's around everyone's hanging out and then again we move into the ritualized space of like the kind of church come courthouse and then it's only in act three that we begin to break that apart and look at how people communicate when there are less of those kind of like practiced standards on it I guess yeah I don't know because I think you get when everyone's just talking that kind of uh, I can't remember what the phrase was that kind of like verbal one-upmanship when they yeah. keep not talking over each other but kind of like coming back and back and forth and if anything I think that's quite far from yeah that's like the honesty and the doing the best they can to kind of literally just kind of like pick something up and put it on a stage like present it to people yeah um which obviously hadn't happened yeah previously if you want to get in touch and suggest anything that you want abby and i to have a look at please email us at didthereadingpod at gmail.com You've been listening to Did the Reading, the podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to, and we'll talk to you next Tuesday.